What have the Romans ever done for us? Hi, and a spooky welcome to the Ancient History Hound podcast. This is the third Night of the Livy Dead episode. If you're a new listener, then you might want to check out the previous two Night of the Livy Dead specials. The first was a two-parter with a guest where we spoke about werewolves, vampires and the like from antiquity, and also modern interpretation and how there was a link there. The second Night of the Livy Dead was a shorter and single episode with just yours truly, and I went over some of the tales we discussed and also added a few extra bits. And now I come to the third, but before I explain what's to come, I want to give a shout out to all returning listeners and any new ones. I've been getting some nice feedback and reviews recently, which is incredibly helpful. Like many other podcasters, the majority of podcasters, this is a hobby, but it's a demanding one. Believe it or not, I spend a lot of time researching, scripting, recording and editing each episode. And that's alongside a regular job and trying to crowbar in, I suppose, what I'd call a normal life or whatever you can call normal these days. Along with caffeine, a few nice words can really help when I'm in a bit of a rut. So feel free to keep leaving reviews, but you can also say hi on Twitter where I'm at Ancient Blogger. I'll be putting up some episode notes on my website, ancientblogger.com, and you can check out my Halloween pumpkins on there. For a few years, I've been carving them in a Greek vase style. I also have tweeted a few pictures, so why don't you have a look at them? And more importantly, why don't you give it a go yourself? Right, back to the episode in question. As you will have noticed from the title and description, this time I'm going to look at ghosts in antiquity. We tend to think of ghosts and ghost stories as a modern thing, but by the end of the episode I hope you realise that ghosts have been a cultural feature going back a long time. In this episode I'll be discussing how various peoples of antiquity understood them, what they did about them, where they featured in plays, letters and inscriptions, and there's even a very inadvisable trick with a walnut thrown in for good measure. In the course of the episode, I'll be visiting various parts of the Mediterranean, but I'm going to start a bit further east and in the lands of ancient Mesopotamia. It was here, in a place called Assur, which is located in modern-day Iraq, that a scribe called Kisinabu was at work in the 7th century BCE. Like many scribes before and after him, he was copying documents, but not the sort you might expect. Kisinabu came from a family of exorcists. His father was the chief exorcist here, and documents he was copying became known as the Exorcist Manual. Copies of this have been found in later periods and other locations such as Sapur, southwest of modern-day Baghdad, and Uruk, further south. The manual was split into three sections and gave the would-be exorcist, or Asipu, a list of rituals to do with consecration, temple rituals, omens, and incantations. It's argued that this was old knowledge by the time Kissia Nabu was at work, with virgins dating back to the 11th century BCE. The job of an Asipu, or Masmasu as they're sometimes called, was a varied one. It could involve dealing with bad weather, failing crops, illness, and all manner of bad portents. But the incidents we are interested in is where the diagnosis indicated that there was a ghost at large. Ghostly activity was taken very seriously. For example, screams and sounds from a potential ghost were considered a particularly bad omen, and the appearance of one likewise wasn't something you want, and that's because ghosts were thought to cause serious illness. Treating a potential victim took a fair amount of knowledge. There was no single treatment. In fact, one scholar, Joanne Skurlock, 
counted 352 different types of remedies for hauntings. The majority of these dated to the 8th and 7th century BCE, but some went as far back as the 12th century BCE. Where a patient was thought to have been made ill by a ghost, the wording found is the hand of a ghost, and this somewhat creepy term is commonly found in descriptions and treatments to hauntings. You might imagine an Asipu arriving at a house where a haunting was reported and someone was ill. The first steps an Asipu took sounds very modern. He would diagnose the patient to understand what those symptoms were. The symptoms identified were used to understand what type of ghost was causing the problem to the patient. I don't mean that there were necessarily different types of ghost. The difference was how that ghost had come to be a ghost. For example, a patient with extreme shortness of breath might be caused by a ghost of someone who drowned. Another patient who had pain in his head and nose, as well as been biting his lips, was thought to be made by a ghost of someone who had died of thirst. In some instances, different body parts could be affected separately by different ghosts. One ritual, thought to date to the old Babylonian period, that is, the first part of the second millennium BCE, used a goat as a receptacle for the various illnesses to be sent to. It was a complex thing to diagnose and then to come up with the right incantation and ritual. These might last a short time or days depending on the patient and the ghost. To help him, the Asipu had a basin of water, a torch and an incense burner. He'd also have supernatural backing in the form of Enki, a deity. But he might also have other lower level beings to make sure he was protected if the patient had something nasty on their ghost, such as a demon. I should add a caveat here that the word demon carries with it a much more modern connotation of inherent evil. In Mesopotamia, this wasn't always the case. An Asipu might then recruit another demon on his side, for example, Pazuzu. Not something you'd want to share a taxi with, even with social distancing. But Pazuzu really hated a demon called Lamatsu, who preyed on babies, infants and young children. If that name rings a bell, it's because Pazuzu made it to the big screen as the demon who possessed the young girl Regan in the film The Exorcist. In Mesopotamia, ghosts were a symptom of imbalance. The natural order of things hadn't lined up for some reason, and they couldn't move on. They died horrible deaths, and as they wandered, they invariably caused suffering to those in the world of the living. So they needed to be sent to the underworld, and that's what Anasipu attempted to do. The idea that ghosts were hanging around on Earth because they couldn't get to where they needed to go was an idea which is also thoroughly shared by the Greeks. In Book 23 of the Iliad, Achilles is preparing for the grand funeral for Patroclus. At night, he wanders to the beach and falls asleep. At this point, what is described as a shade of Patroclus appears to him in a dream. Patroclus points out that Achilles needs to get on and bury him because he's currently just wandering around in the underworld and hasn't been able to pass, as he says, the gates of death. Achilles' response is to try and embrace Patroclus, but there's nothing there to grab, and he watches as the shade of Patroclus is described as retreating into the earth. It's a poignant scene, and one which would have appealed to Greeks of subsequent generations, because proper burial, or at least some form of burial, was a fundamental belief which the Greeks had. Those who in some way denied this were deemed to roam a liminal place in the underworld. They couldn't move on until they'd been buried. This belief was tested to the extreme in 406 BCE, where six Athenian generals were executed for not retrieving the bodies of sailors following the naval battle at Argonusae. 
A ghost resulting from someone not being buried was called an atifoy, and as you'll hear, there are later ghost stories which have this as the prevailing reason for the ghost haunting in the first place. But I don't need to cite these later stories just yet, as there's a perfectly sound example of one such atifoy in a play by Euripides called Hecuba, which was performed in 424 BCE. In this, the atifoy in question is Polydorus, a Trojan prince and son of Hecuba. Unlike many of his people, he hadn't fallen on the battlefield at the spear point of some Greek hero. He'd been sent to live with a Trojan ally called Polymester, along with a sizable amount of loot. The idea was he'd stay there and come back when the Greeks had been defeated. Of course, that eventuality never came about, and Polymester switched sides, killed him, and took the treasure for himself. A host treating a guest in such a way broke another fundamental cultural rule the Greeks had. To add literal insult to injury, the body of Polydorus was then thrown into the sea. Polydorus opens the play and describes how his body lies stretched on the shingle, floating in the salty foam by racing currents rolled endlessly to and fro, unwept, unburied. To anyone reading or listening in the modern day, this sounds very sad, and to a Greek audience there would have been this additional layer of horror to it all, particularly in relation to those last two words, unburied and unwept. Polydorus echoes the fate of Patroclus. He needs to be buried to move on. And where Patroclus had been successful in making contact via a dream, Polydorus has been unable to appeal to his mother through dreams. It's a further layer of tragedy for Polydorus. Another Greek tragedy had a ghost communicating via dreams, albeit this time not to humans. Clytemnestra famously killed her husband Agamemnon, and was then herself killed by her son Orestes. In the middle of the 5th century BCE, Aeschylus wrote a trilogy of plays called the Oresteia, and the start of the third play, called the Eumenides, finds the dead Clytemnestra berating the Furies for not avenging her, and chasing down her son. Just to unwrap this a bit, the Furies were a chthonic set of beings, often three in number, and their job was to pursue those who committed such heinous crimes as matricide. The effect they had was to drive the person into a frenzy. Fear of them meant they were often referred to as the humanities, which actually translates as friendly ones, and that's because people were scared of referring to them by anything else and wanted to keep them on a good side, I suppose, assuming they had one. Euripides also covered this part of the myth in his play Orestes. In it, Orestes is affected by the Furies, who only he can see. They've driven him to a place of near physical and mental exhaustion. He cannot sleep. He's hallucinating and appears gaunt and almost withered. And it's worth considering this description in the context of the Asipu I spoke about earlier. I'd think that an Asipu would have viewed this as someone affected by the hand of a ghost. And I should mention that there is some debate over whether Clytemnestra is considered a ghost in Aeschylus' play. But that aside, and working on the premise that, without a cookie-cutter template given to us, she fits most of the requirements, she can be seen as equally terrifying in death as she was in life. Aeschylus, after all, has her demanding retribution on her own son through the Furies, who, as I've explained, were the Greek equivalent of bringing in the really big guns. Clytemnestra also brings into play a slightly different perspective. With Polydorus and Patroclus, the appeal was for proper burial. Clytemnestra wanted revenge. 
and there was a type of ghost the Greeks called the Elastoroi, who were identified as ghosts wanting exactly that, revenge. But before I go any further with the Elastoroi, here are some words from the excellent Partial Historians podcast. Hello, and thank you for listening in to this exciting podcast episode from Ancient History Hound. This is Dr. G, and I'm super excited to be getting into the spooky spirit of this ghostly episode. There is nothing scarier than ghosts, Dr. G, except ancient ghosts. This is Dr. Rad, and together we're the co-hosts of The Partial Historians. We love the ancient past and really enjoy the way that Ancient History Hound makes the past accessible through this podcast and their blog. With a talent for pumpkin carving and a curiosity for the ancient world, there's something for everyone. If you're looking to add a little more Roman history into your listening mix, we'd love to have you check us out. And you can find the Partial Historians wherever you listen to podcasts. Our website is partialhistorians.com and we're out and about on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Now back to the episode. Much obliged to the good doctors. It's a great podcast. And they're also a must-follow on Twitter if you either love ancient Rome or just want to get to know more about it. Getting back to the more sobering Alastroi, they didn't just haunt the pages of fiction, and perhaps a better example is the case of Pausanias, a famous Spartan general. Pausanias commanded the Greeks at Plataea in 479 BCE, where they defeated the Persians. After this, he travelled to the Hellespont with the Spartan navy, and fell in love with a local woman called Cleonici. Both Plutarch and Pausanias wrote that Pausanias either killed her in a fit of rage, or accidentally killed her. In either case, she appeared to him in his dreams, and this drove Pausanias to various purification ceremonies, which didn't work. Plutarch wrote that he visited an oracle at Heraclea, where he summoned her spirit. Cleonice's advice was that once Pausanias returned to Sparta, she would stop haunting him. Now, if you think this sounded a bit underwhelming, after all, her deal was to just ask a Spartan general to return to Sparta, you'd be wrong, because returning home wasn't a good idea for Pausanias, as we'll see. This was because Pausanias had a case building against him back in Sparta. Like many generals in ancient Greece, the real enemy wasn't who they faced on the battlefield, it was people on your own side. But in fairness, Pausanias doesn't seem to have helped himself much. After Plataea, he'd been sent to the Hellespont with the navy, but rumours developed that he developed a taste for the eastern way of things. After being recalled back to Sparta on charges of aiding the Persians, he then returned to the Hellespont as a private citizen after successfully defending himself. He was forced to return a second time to defend himself again against those familiar charges of conspiring with the Persians. Tipped off that he faced arrest, he ran into a temple to Athena and took sanctuary there. The Spartans were never going to remove him forcibly, that would be a grave violation against the gods. Instead, the small room in which he took refuge was made a prison cell with the door bricked up, and one story has it that it was his own mother, so disgusted with him, who placed that first brick. Spartan mothers, eh? If you want to hear more about Spartan mothers and Spartan women, just a quick plug, I did a two-part podcast on them. And let me tell you, Spartan mothers were a different breed. Just to make things more uncomfortable, The roof was then taken off, and sentries were placed outside to ensure Pausanias didn't escape. Though a sound idea in some regards, the solution via impromptu DIY had painted the Spartans into a corner. They certainly couldn't drag him from the room in the temple, 
but they equally couldn't let him die there, as it would pollute the sanctuary and likely cause offence to Athena. They waited until Pausanias was so weak from hunger, that they managed to get him and carried him outside, where he died, and Thucydides wrote that the Spartans buried his body on that spot. Though Pausanias had given up the ghost, it duly returned. Plutarch's account of this included how Pausanias's angry ghost haunted the temple until experts brought in from Thessaly were able to deal with it. In fact, it's worth noting that this story is really a combination of sources adding their bits. You may have noticed that Cleonice's revenge isn't that immediate, as after returning to Sparta, Pausanias gets off on the charges and returns to the Hellespont before coming back, and presumably this is where Cleonice's words prove true. Yet the source we'd least associate with a tall tale out of the three, Thucydides, included a reference to statues being offered at the temple when Pausanias was buried. Taken at face value, this doesn't mean much, and it's easy to relegate the accounts by Pausanias and Plutarch as just trying to spice up a bit of history. However, those statues might be proof that something went on. This is because there was a plausible link with statues as offerings to help counter a ghost or a haunting. Pausanias wrote about a rock-wielding ghost wreaking havoc near Orchomenus in central Greece. The oracle at Delphi advised that a statue of Actaeon chained to a rock was the solution. It's plausible that the statues offered at Sparta were part of this practice. This opens up the idea that ghosts might be appeased or expelled by the use of votive offerings. Statues were just one form of this. In Cyrene, a Greek colony on the North African coast, an inscription outlined how this might be done on a much smaller, and therefore cheaper, scale. The inscription is known as the Lex Carthatica, and it somewhat ambiguously outlines how you deal with an elasteroid. The first step was to make a proclamation for three days where you'd name the deceased person. You'd then carve a figurine, representing them and set aside a portion of everything for the ghost of the deceased. What this meant was that you'd play host to the ghost with food and water. After being the hostess with the mostess to the ghostess, you'd bury the figurine and hopefully you didn't need to worry anymore. What's worth noting here is that use of figurines to this effect was common in Mesopotamia. The Asipu might use these when exercising a ghost so it's possible that the Greek use of figurines and statues borrowed from this or was informed in some way. A more detailed inscription was found in Salinas, which is in southwest Sicily. It was another Greek colony with an inscription on a lead tablet, which dated to the mid-5th century BCE, so around the same time as the one from Cyrene. Here, the ritual slightly differed. The individual made a proclamation, but then purified himself, this time Without any figurines, he played host with water, salt and a meal as offering of appeasement. Finally, he sacrificed a piglet and ensured that the blood soaked into the earth. And this last detail is important, as it's a clue to the chthonic association with this rite. Often a bowl was used to collect the blood from a sacrifice. Deliberately letting it soak into the ground was thought to nourish the ghost. This was certainly the case with Odysseus in Homer's Odyssey. In order to speak with the dead, he's given a set of instructions which involved digging a small trench with a sword, pouring libations into it, and then cutting the throat of the sheep and allowing the blood to spill into the trench. In the words of Kellis, 
this brings all the boys to the yard, and resulted in a number of ghosts appearing, all eager to converse and then take their fill. The ritual Odysseus performed is a very interesting one. For starters, it's protected knowledge. This is given to him by a goddess. It wasn't readily known by mortals. It could also be Homer referencing an older set of what are known as pit rituals, and these were practiced by the Hittites, a civilization which was based in central modern-day Turkey. Their heyday was the mid to late 2nd millennium BCE, so many centuries before Homer, and their pit rituals were used to access underworld deities. These varied, but would include the pit being dug, sometimes with a dagger. Various libations were also poured into the pit, and often an animal, sometimes a pig, was sacrificed over it, with its throat cut and the blood draining into the pit. It's plausible that Homer was using old knowledge of these, or even a milder variation of them, when Odysseus undertook his mission to contact the dead. After all of that, you might need cheering up. So how about a three-day party where ghosts were attracted not by blood, but by wine? Exactly. Much more preferable. For the Athenians, there was an option to respect the dead and get drunk, and even have a go on a swing. The Anthesteria was a three-day festival, which took place in January or February each year, and split into separate days, each of which had its own function. The first day was called the Pithoiga, and took its name from the fact that jars of new wine were opened and tasted. In fact, the festival itself celebrated the new wine, hence the drinking, but it also welcomed the dead as part of it. This has been argued as representative on a Lekathos, a small Greek vase dating to the 5th century BCE. On it, an image of Hermes stood next to a partially buried wine jar, and around it, small winged figures flit around. The readings of this vary. Is Hermes shooing them away from drinking the wine, or watching them as they fly out of it, or just watching them drink the wine? What's not so much debated is that the winged figures are souls of the dead. A range of activities took place over the three days. This included the overall acceptance that the dead had joined with the festival. Doors were anointed with pitch to keep the ghosts out, and there was even a ritual women performed called the Aura, which they sat on swings suspended from trees and, well, swung. I can only hope that they hadn't drunk too much at that point, otherwise it could get very messy. The final day saw offerings to Hermes and the dead made, with the notion that by doing so, they'd be appeased and Hermes would lead them back to the underworld. That was one of his key duties, by the way. If you're wondering whether ghosts in antiquity could get hangovers from a three-day drinking festival, well, it isn't just you. In his play The Frogs, Aristophanes makes exactly this joke. A more substantial reference to ghosts and hauntings was made not in Athens, but Rome, and by the playwright Plautus. His play, The Mostellaria, is thought to have dated to the beginning of the 2nd century BCE. Mostellaria translates as the haunted house which is a joke in itself, as the house in question isn't haunted. It's a ruse. This ruse is needed to keep a merchant out of his house, and it's facilitated by a wily slave, who informs his master that seven months ago, a ghost appeared to the merchant's son in a dream, and informed him that he'd been murdered by the then owner of the house, who'd buried him there. The slave goes on to suggest a lot of other ghostly manifestations, which have since occurred. For comic effects, someone hiding in the house then makes a noise, 
which the slave cries out as being made by the ghost, which alarms the merchant further. None of this would be effective if the haunted house wasn't recognisable as a cultural feature. To use it as a backdrop to the play both literally and figuratively suggested that the Roman audience of the time were familiar with this concept. A few centuries after Plautus had written his comedy, we have another ghost story involving a haunted house, which is featured in a letter by Pliny the Younger. I featured this in both my previous Night of the Livy Dead podcasts. It's a great story because it has a number of important features to comment on. It's also pretty spooky. The location is 1st century BCE Athens, and we can have a rough idea of the date because the main character is the philosopher Athenodorus. When he arrives in Athens, he comes across a house which has been made available to buy or rent at an incredibly cheap price. The reason, as you would have guessed, was that it was haunted. This wasn't just the odd ball bouncing down the stairs or a mildly annoying type of haunting with things being where they shouldn't have been. It was visceral, and the previous inhabitants had been so scared by the nightly events that Pliny wrote how they couldn't sleep and had died as a result of the continual terror making them unwell. Athenodorus took up the challenge and rented the house. The first night, he asked for a couch to be put in the front room along with a lamp, and he set about writing. After a while, he heard the clanking of chains, which grew louder and louder, but he didn't look up. Eventually, he did, and he saw the figure of an old man with a long beard, with chains on his hands and his feet. The ghost didn't speak to him, but he kept rattling the chains and started beckoning Athenodorus to follow him. This he did, and when the ghost turned a corner in the courtyard, it disappeared. Athenodorus marked the spot with some leaves and went to bed. In the morning, he requested permission from the magistrates to dig the spot he'd marked. There, they found human bones entwined with chains. They were taken away, given proper burial, and the ghost was seen no more. By the way, the letter is Book 7, 27, by the way, in case you want to read it. The story has a number of elements to it which feel quite modern, almost to the point of cliché. There's the haunted house itself, and the ghost rattling chains. It's also interestingly set in Athens, like the house in the Mostellaria. Was this because it was easier to do so, I wonder? Did it make it more believable? Or was it just a nice narrative feature? The ghost itself is an interesting mix of the generally more passive Atafoi and the certainly more aggressive Elasteroi, but perhaps for Rome these definitions didn't really work, and it might not be fair for me to try and make these instances fit these definitions. Its appearance is curious. This isn't a glowing white ghost, or indeed one which can be seen without help from a lamp. It is, though, quite scary. The fact that it cannot communicate verbally somehow adds to this. Instead, it can only make those clanking sounds with the chains. There's even an underlying spookiness to all of it, regardless of haunting the mere fact that human remains are somewhere in a house that you live and you don't know about them is itself pretty creepy. Pliny's account of this is set out in a letter to Licinius Sura, who held the role of consul at Rome on more than one occasion and even got to shave the Emperor Trajan. The letter starts with Pliny asking Licinius' thoughts of ghosts, and after recounting the story I've just told, goes further to write something one of his freedmen had experienced. 
The freedman in question was sleeping next to his brother and dreamt that he saw someone sitting on the bed and cutting some hair off his head with some scissors. The next morning he awoke to find a bald patch and hair on the floor. A while later this happened again, not to him, but in the slaves' quarters, and in this instance two men in white came through the window and cut more hair whilst he was asleep. It sounds a bit more of a prank than a haunting, but the letter is very interesting from the perspective of reading how Pliny handled the age-old question of, do you believe in ghosts? We have another example of a haunting being reported by someone close to it, at least in proximity. Plutarch was born in the first century CE, and in a place called Charonea, which is in the Greek mainland. In his work, Lives, he reported how a local, a man called Damon, had been lured to the baths there and murdered in a room. Though this took place in the early first century BCE, so at least a hundred years prior to the birth of Plutarch, he wrote even in his day how strange sights and sounds were still being seen there. Other first century CE writers had their own accounts of hauntings. Suetonius wrote about a room in Augustus' grandfather's house, where the future emperor spent much of his childhood. And I quote, No one ventures to enter this room except of necessity and after purification, since there is a conviction of long-standing that those who approach it without ceremony are seized by a shuddering and terror. And what is more, this is recently shown to be true, for when a new owner, either by chance or to test the matter, went to the bed in that room, it came to pass that after a very few hours of the night, he was thrown out by a sudden mysterious force and was found half dead before the door. Suetonius had one other ghostly tale and one more directly related to an emperor. After he was assassinated, Caligula's remains were first buried in some gardens and these then received nightly visits from ghosts until his remains were reinterred to the mausoleum of Augustus. The house where his wife and child were killed was also haunted, that was, until it burnt down. Where Athens had its drunken and swimming festival to appease the dead, Rome also had its version, though far less fun. The caveat here is that we only have Ovid as the main source for both of these, the Parentalia and the Lemuria, so it's worth bearing this in mind. The Parentalia took place in mid-February and was a personal affair. Rome shut down and families withdrew to honour their dead ancestors. It was much more sober than the Anthesteria, in more ways than one. As with the Greek festival, food was left for the ghosts as offerings. This lasted for eight days with the Feralia as the final day which the ghosts were ushered back to the underworld through specific rites. The second festival occurred in May. It was called the Lemuria and was shorter at three days. Participants walked barefooted, performed purification rituals and threw black beans over their shoulders. The stages of purification and feeling the ghost feel familiar to those at Salinas, where the person performing the rite also had to wash their hands and then set aside the food. And we've seen elsewhere where feeding ghosts was part of a way in which you interacted with them. Where things get more interesting is where Ovid noted that the Lemuria was originally called the Remuria after Remus, who following his death came back as a none too happy ghost and was appeased by Romulus in this fashion with this festival. If you've listened to my podcast on the foundation of Rome, you'll have heard me speak about how Rome was not shy of retrospectively inventing traditions. And this sounds very much the case here. One aspect the Lemuria did have was throwing straw dolls or argi into the Tiber, and without trying to plug things too much, 
I picked up on this in my Human Sacrifice podcast, as this does feel as if it has a darker origin to it. Keeping things in that darker hue, I come to my next story recounted by Phlegon, a freedman of the Emperor Hadrian. His ghost story carries a more menacing tone, which I'll get to after I've told it. The story is set in a house in mid-4th century BCE Amphipolis in Greece. The family living there had sadly lost their daughter, a young woman called Philinian, several months earlier, and had been visited by a guest called Makates, a young man who was staying with them. Makates had been visited in successive evenings by a young woman. The household nurse happened to spy in on them one evening and was shocked, because the young woman looked very much like Philinian. She reported this to Carito, the mother of Philinian, who peeked in but couldn't quite make things out. The next morning, Carito questioned Makates over his guest. Unaware of anything, Makates told them that the girl was called Philinian and showed a ring that she had given him. This caused no small amount of alarm, as the ring was recognised as one given to Philinian. However, it was still plausible that this girl was someone who looked like her and had just come into possession of her ring. Perhaps she'd bought it from grave robbers. The trio concocted a plan whereby Makates would send the alarm when the girl arrived that night so they could catch her. Makates did just this, and Carito arrived with Demostratos, Philinian's father. They expected to catch the would-be grave robber and ask her how she had got their daughter's ring. Well, you probably guessed it. What they actually found was their dead daughter. The parents were overcome with emotion, as you might understand, but Philinian was anything but happy. She turned on them and vented her anger that she had been interrupted. She then stated that they'd have to watch her die again and her body collapsed lifeless on the floor. The next day, a meeting was held in a theatre in order to decide what to do next. The family tomb was opened, but Philinian's body wasn't there. In its place were a few items she'd exchanged with Makates. The solution given by an augur was to perform a few purification ceremonies and rebury the body. And if you're wondering what happened to Makates, who must have realised that there was more chill than Netflix and chill about his relationship with Philinian, he later killed himself. I never thought I'd say, apart from the possible necrophilia, what really makes this dark is, but the added horror to all of this is that Philinian may not necessarily have been a ghost. She may have been a precursor to a vampire who was looking to eventually target Makates. It's a rare instance of a ghost having a corporeal form, that is to say a real body. What often happens is that the ghost is embraced, but there's nothing to grab. I bet Makates of wish that was the case. And just to lighten the mood, my Night of the Livy Dead One podcast goes into detail with respect to vampires and ancient Greece. A more tongue-in-cheek view on ghosts and the general supernatural was provided by Lucian. He was a writer in the 2nd century CE and hailed from modern-day Turkey. He wrote a number of pieces, and one which survived is called The Lover of Lies. It's a dialogue between characters and includes increasingly more fabulous accounts and tales. Take this story, which isn't ghost-related, but interesting nonetheless, as an example. One character recounted how he'd met Pancrates, who was versed in every type of spell or magical art there was. During his time with him, Pancrates would occasionally transform inanimate objects into sentient beings, which then ran chores, for example, going to the market or doing some cooking. And he did this through an incantation. 
One day, when Pancrates was out, the character tried an incantation on a pestle which had been carrying water the day before. Initially it worked, and the pestle drew water, but when ordered to stop, it wouldn't listen and instead carried on. Eventually the house started to flood, and a potential disaster was averted when Pancrates had returned and used the correct incantations to make it all stop. If this story sounds a bit familiar, then try and imagine the character as a cartoon mouse who was unable to prevent his misuse of magic. Still nothing? Well, this was apparently the inspiration behind The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Just a bit of Disney trivia there for you. In dealing with ghost stories, Lucian doesn't revert to farce. In fact, it's more about ridiculing the whole idea of them. One of the characters recounts a tale which is near identical to the one involving Athenodorus. And there's also one involving a grieving husband who'd just lost his wife. He promised her that he'd burn her clothes and jewellery with her, and one day he's visited by the ghost of his wife. As per those before him, he tries to embrace her, but she's not that interested. Her only reason for visiting him was that because he'd only burnt one of her favourite sandals, meaning that she didn't have a pair to wear in the afterlife. After showing him where it was, she promptly disappears. Lucian's dialogue also has mention of an individual who practised exorcisms, and the context was that it was all an act. This brings the episode neatly round near full circle, because there are accounts of exorcisms and necromancy in Rome in the imperial period. I'll start with the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote of an exorcism performed by a colleague of his in front of the Emperor Vespasian. I have seen a certain man of my own country, whose name was Eleazar, releasing people that were possessed in the presence of Vespasian and his sons and his captains and the whole multitude of his soldiers. The manner of the cure was this. He put a ring that had a foot of one of those sorts mentioned by Solomon to the nostrils of the possessed, after which he drew out the demon through his nostrils. And when the man fell down immediately, he abjured him to return to him no more, making still mention of Solomon and reciting the incantations which he composed. And when Eleazar would persuade and demonstrate to the spectators that he had such a power, he set a little way off a cup or a basin full of water, and commanded the demon that is in one out of the man to overturn it, and thereby to let the spectators know that he had left the man. It wasn't just Josephus who commented on the Jewish practice of exorcism. Rabbi Jonahan B. Zakai, a contemporary of Josephus, was quoted as asking, have you never seen a person into whom an evil spirit had entered? What should be done with one such affected? Take roots of herbs, burn them under him and surround him with water, whereupon the spirit will flee. Another rabbi, Simeon ben Yohai, was credited with expelling a demon from the daughter of Marcus Aurelius nonetheless. To understand this more, I linked him with the Brighton and Hove Jewish community, the BNJC and they were able to advise me that Simeon B. Yohai was indeed a prominent figure, though this story might be one to take more lightly. It would be negligent of me to discuss exorcisms in the 1st and 2nd century CE in the Roman world without mentioning a certain Jesus Christ. Whatever your religious leanings, you cannot get away from the fact that the early Gospels, mainly Luke and Mark, mentioned Jesus performing numerous exorcism-type rituals. The difference here was that these were people possessed by demons, not so much afflicted by ghosts, 
though the instance where Jesus sent a number of demons into a herd of pigs does make me think of that much earlier occasion back in Mesopotamia, which involved a single goat. But it wasn't always Jesus performing these. Acts 19 described a situation whereby a number of Jewish men were going about performing exorcisms in the name of Jesus. Not that they were particularly successful at it though. The instances I've mentioned suggest that exorcism was something which hadn't died out. It might have been reinterpreted and aligned with the monotheistic faiths. But it was still a thing. But was it a Roman thing? Rome had always been in a sort of cultural negotiation with those it lived alongside and often eventually conquered. If you listen to my podcast on the Roman kings, you'll be familiar with how the stories told about that period, largely later invented history by the way, often had the theme of importing new ideas, particularly religious ones. But I don't want to get sidetracked on this, though it is worth acknowledging that Rome's experience with what might be called the other was part of a wider dialogue, which it had both internally and externally. And we do get some ideas of what Romans thought of rituals which involved the dead and specifically speaking to the dead through sources which have survived. Take Cicero's character assassination of a Roman called Vatinus in the Roman courts. Chief amongst these was his alleged practice of necromancy which Cicero claimed involved using the body parts of dead boys. Pliny the Elder included necromancy along with a number of other types of activities which he deemed as fruitless. Ironically, his main piece of evidence for this was that Nero was a huge fan of trying to speak to the dead, but even he'd given up on it. Added to this was his account of Appian, a leading scholar on Homer. Apparently, Appian had summoned up the ghost of Homer and asked it some questions, but he never shared the answers. When Aeneas travelled to the underworld in Virgil's poem The Aeneid, he encountered ghosts but he didn't invoke them or perform any ritual to make them appear. Consider how this differs with Odysseus and how he performed a specific ritual to attract them. Perhaps the idea that Aeneas would have done such a thing was too risky for Virgil to have him doing. As such, it's arguable that Rome wasn't keen on invoking the dead or trying to talk to them. Though he did have those possible festivals of the dead, they were couched strongly within a state religion and not personal interaction. Necromancy was a discipline amongst many others which certain groups became associated with and you won't be surprised when I mention that this was particularly strong with those from Mesopotamia and the East. The terms we find used to cover these are magicians, astrologers and sometimes Chaldeans. Rome seems to have tolerated these groups but on occasion stronger measures were taken. In 16 CE things had come to a head. Tacitus in his annals wrote that the Senate had ordered the expulsion of the astrologers and magicians from Italy. One, Lucius Pituanius, was thrown from the Tarpeian rock. Another, Publius Marcius, executed by the consuls in the traditional fashion to the sound of the bugle outside the Esquiline Gate. Prior to this, there had been expulsions from the city, for example, by Cornelius Scipio Hispanus in 139 BCE and Marcus Agrippa in 33 BCE. In Cato's On Agriculture, written in the middle of the 2nd century BCE, the author advised that those who oversaw farms would keep these types away if they turned up. Even as far back as classical Greece, there were mumblings that there were groups of individuals who were claiming to have outlandish skills and abilities. 
As an example, Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, railed against those who claimed they could cure illnesses through incantations alone. One major criticism, as I've mentioned, was that some thought it all a sham. And it's easy to understand why. Necromancy lent itself to what we might call the performance. Remember Eleazar and the bowl of water, which, when knocked over, signified that a demon had been expelled? But what if you could make a corpse talk? And I don't mean by any supernatural ability. Ventriloquism was a known art back in classical Athens. A very famous ventriloquist was called Eurycles, and he was referenced by both Plato and Aristophanes. The Greek for ventriloquist was agestramentes, which translates as belly prophet, because it could sound as if the belly was speaking. With a crowd eager to be convinced, it would be more than plausible to fool those into thinking that you genuinely had a corpse replying to you if you could throw your voice. Getting people to believe you had a skill like this could bring you a fair amount of coin, but convincing crowds that you had supernatural skills might also bring you power. And now I come to the trick with a walnut. It took place in Enna, a city in Sicily, and around 130 BCE. A Syrian slave called Eunice had built a reputation in making predictions. More impressive was his ability to go into a trance, and whilst doing so, breathe fire. This was actually done with the aforementioned walnut, which had been filled with sulphur and had a couple of holes in it. And it goes without saying, please do not try this at home. Eventually, he had 400 slaves rise up and take the town and crowned him king. They now called him Antiochus, and there was even a coin minted with him on it. Now, one thing Rome had was plenty of slaves. So perhaps the reason Cato didn't like those practitioners such as Eunice hanging around his farms was because the people working there, particularly slaves, might get ideas. Perhaps this is what scared those in power, particularly in Rome. The fear, not that someone could generally summon the dead or speak to them or prophesize in some way, but convince others and the multitude they could. I started the podcast with the hope you'd hear how ghosts were embedded into cultures of antiquity. I've spoken mostly about Greece and Rome. What I found most interesting is how some of the same questions we ask today were being asked back then. Idea of ghosts were accepted as serious things, but also lampooned and satirised, and the people who believed in them likewise. I think I can speak for everyone, though. We definitely need a drunken ghost festival with swings. And I hope you've enjoyed the podcast, heard a new story, learnt something new, or at least taken your mind away from things. I'm going to put my show notes on ancientblogger.com, as I have been doing with my podcast. And if you're on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, just look for Ancient Blogger. It's usually me. And if you want to drop me a line in old school fashion, my email is ancientblogger at hotmail.com. Finally, I realise this year is obviously different to previous Halloweens, but I hope you have fun all the same. Till next time, keep safe and stay well.